Lord, thank you so much for uh, gathering us here together this morning. Lord, we know that um, no time is wasted when it's spent on you. I pray, Lord, that you'd be our focus and our inspiration, our transformation. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can pray for me as well, operating this thing. I'm not necessarily very good with sort of PowerPoints. Uh, theme, encounter. And um, we've, um, the theme is a holy mountain. And I just want to think and help us to think through a little bit about encountering God this morning in various ways. But my way into this is a story of weddings. When I was um, a rector in Chipstead, we used to do loads of weddings. The year before I um, was made rector, they did 50 weddings a year, so they were sort of um, black belts in doing uh, weddings. And I remember them, and you get involved. The year I went, shared with another person, we did sort of 32. And this was quite common to do lots and lots and lots of weddings. I don't remember all of them, but I do remember one of them, and not just the wedding, the reception. At the reception, not the reception, sorry, the practice. What is it? The rehearsal. The rehearsal. I remember the rehearsal. And someone, um, brides, and sometimes they are very particular about what they want. This one was very, very particular about what she wanted and the way she was going to walk in, this, that, and the other. And I thought, I'm running the rehearsal, not you. Uh, But that was obviously wrong. She wasn't very smiley to start off with. Uh, and uh, she made a point of telling me, and not many of our brides can say this or would want to say this, but she's made a point of telling me that the person that she's betrothed to be married to, they don't live together, and by what she's trying to say, we don't sleep together, so this is like quite a big deal, this wedding thing for her. When it came um, to the, the wedding itself, I just wasn't quite sure how she was going to react And she uh, wore a veil. But when she came to the front and she was unveiled, she just radiated with joy and love for the one that she was going to marry. She hadn't given a lot of hints of this in the rehearsal, but there it was in her eyes and in her face. Veils crop up a few times in Scripture. I'm stretching this one slightly, but Genesis 29, I imagine there's a veil involved when Jacob married his first wife. So we know the story. He woke up the following day. Maybe she had a very heavy veil on for the ceremony and was good at sort of doing another voice. Maybe had too much wine. But the one he woke up to wasn't the one he was expecting to wake up to. He was given the elder sister, and then they did two for the price of one because he did sort of lots and lots of work. So he got the one that he was imagined he wanted to marry. I wonder what veiled her presence from Jacob. Sometimes things are veiled under a cloud of darkness. We'll know about things, maybe in others' lives, maybe in our, other, in our own lives, that are veiled in this way. That wasn't the person that I did the wedding ceremony for. Do you know who it is? 
give you a clue. Imagine what Prince Harry would have thought. I'm not sure that Meghan's got a sister, but it's a little bit awkward. Anyway, more positively, in Exodus 34 verses 29-4, we read that um, Moses' face shone with God's glory after um, he met God on Mount Sinai. And um, he put a veil over his face so other people didn't see God's glory. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 picks up this theme. Moses' face veiled to conceal God's fading glory. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple were veiled from ordinary people, had very restrictive access. The high priest had access once a year on the Day of Atonement. The need for atonement, which they went doing time and time again, was met for us once for all in the death of Jesus Christ. The perfect sacrifice once for all for our sins. The veil, as we know, of the temple was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last on the cross. For us, faith in Jesus means that we can approach God in a new way with unveiled faces. 2 Corinthians verse 3 assures us that the spiritual veil that dulled our understanding about God was lifted. God's presence in the lives of Christians was no longer to be a fading glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory and have been transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, who is the Spirit, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're to contrast the fading glory of Moses by the ever-increasing glory, as hard as you might find for this to believe, which should be revealed in you and me, yes, in ever increasing measure. So for those of you who've got Bibles open, um, we're now going to be in Luke 9 to start off with. Um, was it 1040? We're going to do 1039 to start off with. The account of the transfiguration comes at a pivotal point of Jesus's ministry um, when he's ready to purposefully head for Jerusalem. God unveils his glory in a unique way in Jesus. If a bride can look glorious, how much more God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's glory is revealed in a variety of ways. John, uh, the gospel writer, reminds us of this. There are signs that point to his glory. At the beginning of Luke 9, we read that Jesus has sent the disciples in two to preach about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In Luke 9, verses 18 to 20, when Jesus was praying with his disciples after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, he asked people to think who he is. He asks his disciples directly. Maybe it's a question for us again this morning, who do you think that I am? Peter gets close to discerning Jesus' identity. 
declaring Jesus, verse 20, to be the Christ of God. But we know that he only had partial understanding about Jesus' Messiahship. Luke 9, verse 22. Jesus' glory was going to be revealed through suffering, rejection and death. This isn't the glorious success that most of us are looking for in life. Verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to new life. His disciples must be prepared to follow him and his teaching in daily cross-carrying. Verse 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it if someone gains the whole world yet forfeits their soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Distinctive daily discipleship is costly. It's counterintuitive, otherworldly. And although life brings us challenges, all of us in varying degrees, God promises to be with us in it. We're to be obedient, faithful, but we can know contentment and life and joy and peace and hope And a deep assurance that God is with us, come what may. Luke 9.28, about eight days after that most challenging of conversations, Jesus took a select group to encounter God in a new way. As Jesus was praying, verse 29, his face Changed and his whole appearance was transformed. It's one of those moments that doesn't happen very often in Scripture where we feel that heaven and earth are touching and revealed in the person of Jesus. We see this at his baptism, we see it at the, at the transfiguration, I think we see it at his death and his resurrection. Some might call it a theophany, God making himself visible. It comes, remember, just after Peter declares Jesus, verse 20, to be the Christ of God. About um, 20 years ago, I went to theological college And some of the lectures were really, really organized, and people loved it. Some people loved it um, when they were given a whole load of notes with bullet points in advance so that they could very carefully write everything down so that they could be proper vicars. 
because um, they'd know everything there is to know. I can remember being quite bored by some of this stuff, actually. Um, and there was one guy called George Babawi who interviewed me. I didn't mean to go to St. John's Nottingham. I didn't go. But I went in the presence of this room, and he was a Jew, and he was a Coptic, and he was weird, and he was bright, and he was all sorts of different other things. But I got into the room, and I just felt as though um, this guy can read my mail. Someone gave me a little bit of a look, and it, it's like he saw right in, deep into me. And I thought, actually, I wouldn't mind being in a place with folks that can do that sort of thing. I don't know whether he could or not. I know he's messed up a few times. He's got feet of clay just like the rest of us. But in his lectures, he used to get in a lot of trouble because he never used to stick to the script at all. And I loved it. I loved those moments when he didn't stick to the script because that's sometimes when you find out what the really important thing is. And I've not really got the transfiguration. I'm not even sure that I get it now even. But I do remember as he spoke about Jesus, as he spoke about the Lord's glory, as he spoke about um, Elijah and Moses and God speaking, the whole thing just came alive for me. Something stirred within and I got excited about being a minister of the gospel, of a God. And I suppose it was coming to earth, touching earth, but just that evidence, it went beyond maybe some of the nativity stories and it meant something to me in a deep and transformative way, in a way that I thought, yeah, I want that and I want that time and time again. When we think about the transfiguration, maybe it has all sorts of uh, implications for you. Maybe you've not even thought about it. Verse 30, Moses and Elijah, this is an icon by the way on the screen, um, appeared. They're pillars of the Old Testament. Moses of the law, Elijah of the prophets. Interesting, in the conversation uh, between Moses and Elijah and Jesus wasn't reminiscing about old times although there was probably plenty to reminisce about. Moses didn't say, Jesus, were you watching when I lifted my staff just at the right angle and in the right way and the water parted in front of me and your people were set free? Elijah didn't say, do you remember that mountaintop experience when I was against the whole world, the prophets of Baal, and there was this massive showdown I thought I was alone. Thank you, God, that I prayed just the right prayer in just the right way and you showed up in fire. He didn't say that. No, instead, they looked to the future and spoke of the most momentous event in human history that was about to occur, God's rescue plan for the world. They spoke about Jesus' departure, Luke 9.31, It was going to offer freedom of a new kind, an even more significant exodus, a fulfillment in Jerusalem of their hopes and their prophecies. In order to truly rescue a people from an eternal exile from God, Jesus 
had an appointment that he was going to meet. An appointment with death and resurrection in Jerusalem. In verse 32, we're told that Peter, James and John were really sleepy when all this was going on. It must have been a hard climb, I imagine. I don't know. Um, And they nearly missed a view to die for. It seems it took them a bit of time to come round and to be fully awake, fully present. They wanted to capture, preserve, enshrine this moment. Verse 33, Peter wanted to build three shelters. It was his attempt to bring honour. But instead, it would have bound them in time and space. Sometimes we inadvertently seek to tame or constrain God. Have a spiritual framework to cope with, um, I suppose, things like transfigurations and signs and wonders. The shelters were going to do it from them, but God was revealing himself in his glory and to be a suffering servant. A cloud descends. When this is spoken of in the Bible, it's as if a weight descends. God's tangible, glorious presence is Shekinah glory. The disciples' fears rise. Then God the Father speaks, verse 35, This is my Son who I've chosen. Listen to him. There's a parallel, as we know, with Jesus' baptism. Listen to Jesus. Listen to what it means to be a disciple. Listen to what Jesus and the others are thinking about the future, what's important, what they are going to, the appointment they're going to meet. Given his future and impending departure, his crucifixion, I would argue that it's wise to listen to every word that proceeds from the mouth of this God. Things go back to normal, afterwards, sort of, but the disciples are changed They had a deep secret to keep for another time when they would indeed bear witness and many of them with their whole lives. There would be no shelters fixing this moment in time and space. They needed to come down the mountain and re-enter the reality of the world Jesus, as I've said, was heading for Jerusalem. There was evil to confront, a godly kingdom to build. The disciples were soon to be called to be Jesus' ambassadors and share his glorious message with the world. Maybe, like me, you can pray, Lord, show me more of your glory. Or maybe a better prayer, Lord, help me to reveal more of the reality of your glory 
to a watching and a waiting world in daily living. It's a humbling and slightly daunting thought to think that we have the perfect opportunities to reflect God's glory in daily living through what we do and what we say. What does ordinary daily living look like and feel like for you? For some of you, it's maybe quite mundane. I don't do the shopping and the cleaning and the cooking and the school runs and the commuting and the commuting and the commuting. For some of you, ordinary living might be going for doctor's appointments and having scans. For some, maybe looking after grandchildren, working in schools. What does ordinary daily living the sort of living that you're called to reveal God's glory look like for you. That's all you've got to work with. Ordinary daily living for me, this week, I would argue, reveals God's glory from time to time. I would say that our staff meeting last Monday was glorious as folks shared stories about what God had been doing in the life and work of the church. I'm stretching this a little bit, but we had a glorious operations meeting. And actually, without the operations meeting, things would be rather inglorious around here if nothing got done. I had some glorious meetings with folks that have put themselves forward to be pastoral assistants and going through the training and just to hear their stories about how grateful they are to have be put on this course and to be giving up their uh, probably very precious time to be doing it and liking it and liking the people that they're journeying with. That is glorious. I think it was a glorious night here as folks came for Worship Central. There was probably a glorious meeting that some of you were involved in um, with growing leaders earlier in the week. Maybe it was the music practice, I don't know. I had a rather unusual glorious meeting doing some prayer ministry training with someone who had a serious medical ailment during the whole of the time that we were there. Not that serious, but serious enough for them to not have to... Well, they didn't need to go, but they did stay. And I thought, Lord, how, with all this confusion that's going on, is your glory going to be revealed? But God showed up in extraordinary ways, as he did on Alpha, where one or two people opened themselves up to the Holy Spirit and I think gave their lives to the Lord. I've got a rather unusual, glorious experience this week. It was sometime last year when I had a phone call from someone who I worked with about 20 years ago, just before my George Babawi experience. And he phoned up 
well, actually, track me down. Is it all right to call? Yes, it's all right to call. Some of you might know this story. It's one of the weirdest conversations I've had. It might be recorded, so you might hear what I'm going to say here. But I did say it in public the other day. But he phoned me up. He says, Pat, Pat, it's Mark. I said, oh, all right. He said, cut to the chase, cut to the chase. He says, the devil's got cancer. I said, what are you talking about, Mark? What are you talking about? He said, the devil's got cancer. I said, you're going to have to help me here a little bit. And for the purpose he might listen, he said, Stevie Good's got cancer. We used to have not very nice nicknames for one another when I was a futures trader. But Stevie got this nickname. He's not the devil at all. He's a lovely guy, but he's done some fairly inglorious things, let's put it that way, as part of his life. And Mark was phoning and reaching out. I think he wanted me to pray, but he wanted me to meet this chap again. And I said, well, I can't do that unless the person wants to meet with me. Anyway, Steve was, along with four others, was given a year to live. And they were put on a special treatment. And Steve was told on Wednesday... And we had a, so Thursday I think it was, we had a, a lunch I had with other traders on Friday that I've not met for 20 years. But he was told on Thursday, I think, that um, the cancer seems to have cleared up for now and we keep on praying. But out of the four that started this treatment, there's only one left and it's him. Now, if he's listening... I don't know whether he's taking the mick or not. But actually, he did one of the worst speeches ever at the table and said that I had to do a talk, which I wouldn't do because I didn't want to get stitched up. But I said, what do you want me to say, Steve? So he said it, and I said, amen. It's the shortest sermon that I've ever preached. But I think he wanted, I think this is genuine, for me to thank and praise God that he's got his life back for now. He told me, and he's really upfront about this, church is not a place that he visited at all. But when he had cancer, he did go there. I don't understand why some people are given respite and others aren't. But Steve, in a way that only he could, wanted to give thanks to God. And we had some really, really interesting other conversations as well, I would want to argue that God's glory was revealed in that lunch that I went to on Friday. It'd be such a shame to miss the God glory moments in your lives because of a sight or a healing failure. Or being in spiritual slumber. Or through indifference. Or through unbelief. Or being so caught up in our plans for life that we make little or no room for God to set our priorities. We're to learn spiritual listening skills With Jesus, verse 35, this is my son who I've chosen, listen to him. 
we too are chosen. We can ask for our minds to be unveiled, our ears to be unstopped, our eyes to be opened, our tongues loosed, our feet unshackled. A lesson for me from today's passage is not to be too distracted by making shrines for the past, although it's okay to remember and celebrate what's gone on. But we're to come to the mountain and live in the moment, but also with our hope anchored in Jesus way, way, way into the future. There's a kingdom waiting to be built. Ask the Lord to give you the next steps on his pathway for you. When the cloud lifts, we're all called to go down into the valley to get our hands and feet dirty, to embrace the opportunities of daily living, knowing that we take God's glory with us. Following Jesus is costly. Luke 9 reminds us a couple of times, verse 23 and 24, and 57 to 62. Luke 6, 9, 62 says, No one who puts their hand to the plough plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We're to pray that as we plough on, we can be assured, 2 Corinthians 9.18, that we all, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his, his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we're filled with the Spirit and obedient to God's call, we can be assured that his glory will be revealed. I pray that all of us would crave an ongoing encounter with God, not just on the mountaintops, but in the ordinary stuff of life on a daily basis. Amen.